Hi, I'm Tillman Robel, and you're listening to the Denim Hunters podcast. Welcome to the Denim Hunters podcast. My name is Thomas, and I'm your host. Whether denim is your passion or your profession, or maybe both, this is the podcast for you. Denim Hunters is a blog-turned-consultancy platform. We direct denim business through insights, creativity, and action. If you have a denim business and you'd like to know more about how we can help you grow it, go to denimhunters.com forward slash work. Before we get to the interview, I wanted to let you know how much I appreciate that you're listening. And I have a small favor to ask of you to help me grow this podcast. Would you share it with five denim heads you know? Ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts are also more than welcome. And don't forget to subscribe to get notified when new episodes come out. Alright, we're almost ready to get to the interview. But first, here's the FAQ of this episode. Right, so Tillman, what are some of the most frequently asked questions that you get? Um, question number one would be probably, is it true that uh, some jeans are used before uh, they come into the store? Which is obviously a hilarious question because people buy into, into jeans with uh, white spots and holes on the garment. And yes, yes, unfortunately, they're... They used. I mean, I'm 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 more the kind of guy who wears in his own raw jeans, so they look like what I am. But yeah, that's a funny hmm. question, and it comes all the time. Nice, interesting. And and other questions? Um, Did you get? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Other question is: um, is it is it is it true that uh, jeans are from America? Uh, always go like, oh my God, that is a complicated question because we know that there's the the, the city of Jean, Genova, uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, well, that yeah, was yeah. a long time before and uh, I tried to explain that thing with the, the fabric sent from the city of Nîmes, de Nîmes to Jeans and, but we also know that it's way older probably than that but, but, from what we know is that it comes from the European countries. And as much as I know, it was first delivered to England. And it was the English who said jeans, because England was a long time before America, quite famous for the workwear manufacturing. If you have a question that you'd like me to answer or ask my guest in a future episode, you can submit it at denimhunters.com forward slash questions. You can send it in as text, which I'll then read out, or you can record it as audio, which we can then play back on the podcast. Just remember to state your name and your Instagram username. Good. So, Tillman, uh, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. It's been uh, some years since we met, I think... Yeah. five years or something maybe six years um, I, mean, I think so yeah six years and probably. I I have a, a photo of the first time we met and I've shared it on my Instagram several times and it's of your beautiful Levi's vintage clothing jacket yeah uh, that old <laughs> is it it's a type 2 if I remember correctly yeah um, that you've never ever washed never ever washed yeah 
I, I, I bought it some, I think, 30 years ago or so, wow. and I'm wearing it since, yeah, 30 years without without washing. Well, mending, obviously, because it's been breaking in over here and over there, so there's some Sashiko stitches and 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 some patching um and a lot of a lot of stitching made with actually uh, real um indigo uh, uh warp dyed yarn from the factory so nice. so that's that little extra there's no poly cotton on it <laughs> nice yeah and so that's a really old that's even pre levi's vintage clothing then it's it's early early days then at least uh, so well, well well it's a lvc uh, it's a a re-edition but it's uh, um the, the rivet say sf it's made in san francisco so mm. it's one of the very first series and i think it's a pretty rare item item to get and in in that state, wherever I go, people want to buy it when they see it on me. So, <laughs> yeah, I just took a picture and and shared that. But uh, but it is a lovely jacket. So that's how we met, and that was in Amsterdam. That was in at Kingpins. I yeah, remember. at Kingpins, I remember um, well. Yeah, just outside the entrance there, I took uh, a picture. Yeah, I, I I came to your booth and I saw a lot of your stuff early on when you did. Uh, I think you had that big booth back in the bread and butter in berlin oh, in the, yeah, yeah, in the yeah. lock area right cool yeah we did uh, we did that two yeah. or three times and we printed out a lot of pictures of fades and put them exactly. on the wall yeah that was really exactly. early days for me as well yeah. it was like yeah, yeah. eight years ago wow yeah. wow yeah okay so um but anyways so then we i think really got to know each other when i was invited to uh, to munich for blue zone the trade show there uh, that's four years ago Mm -hmm. uh just around this time uh yeah. i had just published my book they invited me there to to sort of show it and then we met really i mean and we because you were there as well and you were already working with them and we will get into that um but mm. but before i mean you also hinted already that you said you got the uh indigo uh thread the yarn or that you use for the mending from the factory so how do you get that from the factory i want to know that too and maybe that <laughs> that piques some interest for the listeners so but before we get into all of this let's get to know tillman a little bit better so i mean um you yeah so so your story is i mean why don't you just tell it where do you come from and how did okay. you how, how did it all start for you <laughs> yeah okay let's let's go for that well for, for for the real nerds i have a wikipedia page so if you can oh. go on, on tillman roble o with the two dots on top of the o you can get all the little detailing and sometimes when i have interviews with press and people have looked at my wikipedia page i feel really naked in front of <laughs> <people>. <laughs> wow okay um, well, I'm I'm Franco-German. I'm born, born in Düsseldorf. Düsseldorf is that little city in Germany which uh, tries to be a, a fashion capital, which is sometimes hmm. a bit, sometimes not, but it's still working, and I love that city. I'm born in there. And so when you're born in a city where your mother works in in fur fashion and, and, and you grow up in a city where two times a year you have like the fairs, the fashion fairs, blah, blah, blah. 
Uh, and and then maybe also because I, I I went out a lot, you know. I I used to be first some kind of really really cool hippie, and then mm-hmm. started skateboarding, and then one day became some some kind of a strange posh disco nightclub guy, whatever. And, and, and then you did all this. This was in because you were young in the eighties. Yeah, was that, that was that was yeah late nineteen seventies, early eighties. Yeah, yeah. Nice. No, I used to I used to travel from Düsseldorf to Paris to go and dance in the in the Palace Le Palace and in the Bandouche mm. when it was the big time. You know, like big time, not today the commercial times. You know when. Fabrice Emer was running the place in in Le Palace and Lagerfeld and everyone was in there. So that was that was my weekends. You know, I would run away from the German carnival and 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 go dance and do the real nightclubbing, not no 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 strange technotronic <laughs> things. And and so I, I developed quite fast a, a certain taste for 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 dressing and behaving and and. And everything, and and enjoy. I personally enjoy a lot the nice things in life. I can be pretty relaxed, but I can feel also very comfortable in sartorial and and well dressed uh, places. Okay. And so I decided to to one day that I wanted to work in the fashion business. So I went to the um, Düsseldorf um, Library. The, the mm-hmm. city library and there were in front of me 300 books about the history of fashion and so one year i started reading book one uh, a and <laughs> i i read all the books until i ended up at z when i was 19 or 20 or something uh, when i was 17 i understood that in one of the books they and i was also reading a lot of Vogue magazine and blah, 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 Italian Vogue and French Vogue. And I wrote all the time about that French fashion school, which Yves Saint Laurent had done, the Chambre Syndicale de la Couture Parisienne. And so I went to Paris and, and went to that school and said, look at me, in four years, I will be in that door and I want to do your school, whatever happens. And four years later, later I was there and, and they, they took me. And I ended that school and won quite a big award. I mean, I won a few awards during my years in the school, but one very big award where I ended up on German TV, blah, 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 as being the new young talent to look out for, blah, 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 the Nina Ritchie Haute Couture Award. And so I spent some time in the Haute Couture, Christian Dior, Nina Ritchie, um, I worked personally for Mr. Courage when, when he was still in place. Um, uh, always between these, I don't know how to say, my, my urban skateboarding roots and, and my, my feel to make all the nice things or the elegant and, and posh things in life a little bit nicer. And, but after, after a few years in that fashion industry, I felt that I was somehow locked up in an ivory tower. There were so many rules and so many noble people who were actually not working to get money just because more than because they wanted to have a nice position in a well-known couture business. And, and me, uh, every afternoon I went out, went to the Paris, the only, back in the day, the only Paris skateboarding ramp and and took off my suit and and put on my vans and and shorts and skateboarded there and then 
I think my friends from back in the day you remember me coming in in the in these fashion suits like a dressed man and then hmm. putting on the shorts and the vans and getting breaking all my ankles and knees and everything on a, on a <laughs> ramp. Um, and after that, after that uh, uh, haute couture thing, um, I went straight into the skateboarding thing. I, I, I hooked up with Etnies and did the second or third uh, um, textile range they ever did. And coming from the haute couture, I had a lot of ideas, but I had no idea back in the day how in the ready-to-wear business T-shirts were manufactured. And so it wasn't a big, big success. What I was doing for Etnis was full of ideas. There were many, too many ideas, the, the two brothers, the Rotiro brothers told me. Um, but I, I had no clue on how... You know, I was so used to work with many assistants around me. Uh, and, and, and then when they told me, oh, we have to go to Portugal and make it with the manufacturers, I thought, what? A copy made in Portugal? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, and then I bumped into Jürgen Wolf from Homeboy in Germany. And again, you know, I helped him and Klaus Grabke uh, to do one of the very first uh, 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 ranges in, in, in skateboarding gear for Homeboy before it became famous for these funny, funny baggy pants and stuff. And, well, from there I went into the French Alps, worked for a small brand who was more into snowboarding because back in the day we all realized that when you went on the snow with a snowboard, you could do all you wanted to do on a big ramp and on a skateboard. And when you would fall, you would just fall into snow. And, and so I've spent three or four years in the French mountains pioneering uh, snowboarding and going to all the European championships and riding with all the best professional riders and having a lot of fun mm -hmm. really it was my bachelor times um, <laughs> nice. and having a lot of fun and 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 then i got in contact what, so yeah. so i need a bit of a timeline now where where, where what where, what time are we at now uh, i think we're in the late 80s now Oh, in the okay. late 80s. And then I, I, I got contacted by a French brand, and now we come to Denim, French mm -hmm. brand which was uh, named Sheepy. Mm -hmm. Not to mix up with CPI company, Sheepy from France, where yeah. actually quite a few very famous designers uh, had worked, uh, like Christian Odigier, uh, blah, blah, blah. And, and, and They had a licensee in Germany who sponsored snowboarders, professional snowboarders. And so they were pretty forward-looking to a guy who knew something about fashion, come from the haute couture, was into snowboarding, knew all the professional snowboarders. And, and so I ended up at Chippy being uh, head of first the Northern European range, which was a bit more action sports related, where we did sweaters and T-shirts and jeans for skateboarders and snowboarders, and then uh, head of the entire CP design. And then that was the day when, when, I, when I started learning about denim with uh, Jean Elbaz, Christian Sansat, uh, uh, Olivier uh, Grasset, uh, with whom I traveled the world. Really, I have to tell, I traveled the world, you know, New York, Los Angeles, blah, blah, blah. Lots of cash in the pockets buying from, from fantastic vintage thrift store stuff, which you can't find anymore in thrift stores these days, you know. But back in the day, it was mm. really exciting. 
renting those Mustangs and then going across California and, and buying super, super nice vintage stuff and then coming home and driving a team of 20, 20 designers and pattern makers, blah, blah, blah. And lots of people with uh, strong, strong, strong characters and identities. And that is how I started Denim. And I truly wow, felt... Really- TV was really that big still. It was that big in, in the late 80s. Yeah, well, it made something like a 500 million French francs, which was big back, back in the day, you know. Mm. It was, uh, and I think it was especially big because the brand was known as an idea developer. You know, when mm. we would do the intergenes in, in Cologne, uh, people would come to our store, to our booth just to to check the ideas, you know? So we, we, you know, the big boss who then started, uh, had, had brought back uh, Goyard, Jean-Michel Signol, he was really into developing ideas. So we were all into that thing, making denim and having ideas and everyone had to come up, come up with a new plan, a new thing and a new idea. And well, from there, I was headhunted to Quicksilver Europe Mm-hmm. And became the head designer of Quicksilver Europe. So or let's say head of design because I had, again, 20-something people working for me, uh, Quicksilver, Roxy. And, but that was a really exciting thing because I learned how an American br- uh, company is managed. Uh, I learned how to work the American way. I've spent five, five times a year. I was in California. I was in Japan. I was in Korea. I was everywhere. You know, I would see everyone except my wife and my young born hmm. first daughter. Um, uh, somehow it was me, you know, it was a really marketing driven company. And, and so I wasn't always, um, with the flow within the company. And so one day, um, especially when when surfwear started slowing down, and I felt like, oh, my God, it's really slowing down. And so I I did that thing back in the day. I created that slogan, which was Surf is Dead, and um, which was for the brand Gotcha, which belonged to the group. And and we got really famous with that Surf is Dead thing. And and the the, the CEOs of Quicksilver really went angry. (laughs) (laughs) you know i was a skater you know and and skaters used to have stickers like skateboarding is dead since years and it wasn't a big deal but surface dead was a big deal and so one day we found a solution which was great you know allowed me to bring in more new um, companies work in a more uh, uh, urban more fashion driven environment I started my own consultancy, which I named Monsieur T, because when um, because Monsieur T was how I was named when I used to work in the haute couture back in the day. People mm. did not call you Monsieur Robel with your family, but with your with your first name, Monsieur Tillman. So I decided to name my consultancy Monsieur T, and. And from then on, I started working with many, many, many other brands who were in help, in need for, for some help on their, on their denim development. It started with Lee Cooper, where I, I contracted quite a big 
thing, you know, because uh, there were a lot of different consultants and designers, but season after season, I gained a bit more of this, a bit more of that, and this range, and then the premium range, and then the trend range, and then the international range. And so I was consulting for over over 10 years fully Lee Cooper International um, in a very difficult licensing environment, which means like even if you have the best designs of the world which you implement, the licensees will or will not take over those designs. So I'm, I became, I've become with the years really, really specialized into uh, design direction for licensing uh, uh, mm. groups. Uh, because we made all the global global creative direction and and by taking in account uh, I don't know the weather conditions in Thailand for winter seasons or, or and all this so um, the team slowly started increasing um, we two years ago we were about twenty and we were doing the ranges denim. Zadigi Voltaire, Zappa, Oxbow, DC Shoes, consulting Adidas Originals, training the whole team from Adidas Originals on denim. Um, oh, too many to mention. Sometimes, yeah. so, sometimes I say, you know, we, we, we can be in a plane back from Bangladesh and then in the afternoon have a meeting at Chanel to, to help the team with uh, some, some advice on, on their denim, which happened once or twice. It's not like a big thing with Chanel. But, <laughs> uh, but, but, so, yes, we have a big stretch. And in between, there's the shows. In between, yeah. there's the magazines I write for. And in between, there's the manufacturers, the mills. I help developing denim. And that is Monsieur T today. All right, so Tillman, you you said that you work with shows, and like I said in the beginning, that's where we first probably met, and, and we we talked. That was at Blue Zone, mm-hmm. and um, at the day this airs, it's, it's the same week that uh, Blue Zone's um, show this year, this autumn is gonna happen, and and it, this this time it's called Fabric Days, um, and of course. We are still, there's still a pandemic going on with, with the coronavirus mm. um, and, and all the consequences that that has had. Uh, so I also wanted to talk about, you know, now we have your story and we know why you sort of qualify to talk about this even. So so I want to want to get your take and, and, and discuss with you what's going on right now with, with trade shows in, in the manufacturing and, and brands, but also, you know, looking into the future, what's going to happen. And especially with trade shows, especially at least with places where people meet. Uh, so trade shows, of course, are you know dependent on they bring people together. That's really what they do, mm. uh, and of course that it's it's difficult now. Mm. So so let's talk about that. And uh, but first, okay, so fabric days and, and your involvement. Let's just and in blue zone. Let's just understand what you do there and and your role. Well, my, um, I'm a consultant for um, for uh, Blue Zone. I do work uh, with um, Panos and Sebastian mainly. I also work with uh, Frank uh, and obviously the creative director uh, Jo Jo Baumgartner. Uh, I do also work with uh, Lucy. Um, my my input in there is that. 
I do work with uh, you every season on the trends, which means I develop um, in somehow aligned with what Jo does from Munich Fabric Start, uh, the specific trends for, for Blue Zone, which try to help, first of all, the exhibitors to present relevant samples and novelties, blah, 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 for the fair, but also the visitors for whom we like to bring in... Um, impressions, ideas, um, these fantastic moments in life where you go like, oh, yeah, I, I, why not? Or I want to try this or, or I would like to think about something. That's an important point for me. It's also always to think about things. Um, I know that many of my competitors uh, spend a lot of time scrutinizing the uh, fashion shows, the catwalks around the world and top designer this did that and top designer XYZ did this with denim. And then, but I always feel like having worked for the upper luxury market for years, that denim should not resign feeling like a... Um, trend extension like oh my god this and that designer has shown this um, so we have to we have to do something similar mm. when when you look at when you look at um, Virgil Abloh's last range where which was obviously very very nice made in Shanghai uh, but there's been a lot of noises saying oh but looks a bit like Walter van Berendonk. So I think we're all at the same level. I think there is no, um, yeah, okay, yeah, truly. Um, maybe there's more press, more media attention given to the, the famous names. But I always, when I'm, when I'm working on these trends for, for Blue Zone, I always want to make people more think about something, what's going on in their mind, in their guts, and try to somehow become themselves, because that's what I see is the most important thing today. It's not to do what other brands or other designers have done, but to become yourself. And uh, I, I try to make myself as much available during the fair to speak with the people, to present the, the, the trends, to make sure that people understand that the most important thing is being your own, not being someone else. Well, if you try to be someone else and you sell 30% less expensive, that might be a target. Um, it's not a revolutionary target, but it might, might feed your belly. Um, hmm. But in the end, I think that the top of the top is when the brand becomes something of its own. You know, I've, I've been working with, um, with Katsu uh, from Momotaro, Japan Blues, Soul Life, you know, Katsu Manabe, who, you know probably very well and mm -hmm. when i'm with him in japan and i see how he conceives products that's what i feel like it's it's the thing to do not not like him or do what he does but be in your own office and do your own thing and not doing what others have already done and that's why i see the the trend work um, for for a denim fair is extremely important that's why i see that where 
the networking, the personal contact with people is extremely important. And I don't know about you and about the people who listen to us, but I've spent a lot of time these last weeks on WebEx, Zoom, and whatever meetings trying to yeah, convince yeah. people about this and that, uh, trying to assist to I don't know how many fairs which exist now on, on, on the web, you know, where I'm invited. Oh, we make a fair on the web. Okay, but it's, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm going to the movies and I only have the advertisement and, and, and there's no movie coming after the advertising. <laughs> so there's, I'm, after That's... a certain while, you fall asleep, you know. I mean, yeah. I've, there's fantastic people, you know. Hamid, Hamid has said a lot of very, very interesting things during one of those uh, um, internet uh, trade fairs. But you have to wait for it and you have to be ready at that moment. And it's not the same thing at all. When, when, we, when you meet people in real life, it's such a different thing. And mm. one thing, our business is made about touching fabric. Yeah. You can tell me whatever you want, you know. Of course, I understand. Now we have the COVID. Now we can't do whatever we want. There's a lot of restrictions. But as soon as we're over it, especially especially over the public or the governmental panic, uh, yeah. I don't know if there will be a second wave. I'm, I'm not a sci scientist, but personally... I think humans are stronger than that, you know. And if we would make as much noise uh, about people who die in the streets because of car accidents as we make noise about people who die because of the COVID, we would probably not have yeah. cars anymore. So anyway, let's go back. So I think we will soon be over that. And the first thing we have to do is get back together Uh, the community and touch the fabrics, feel reality, speak to each other and, and exchange our souls, our gut feelings or what, what's, what's inside of us. That's that makes the difference. Then still the accounting department and the marketing department can run behind those people who are able to develop and to do things in life and say, oh, but it will cost this, or in terms of marketing, we have to do that. But first of all, it's about people, and people have to meet each other, and people have to be in passion with things, and then the business can be done with it. But you're, okay, so so let's talk about, you know, and you already said, and I sort of, ex I think you already expressed your opinion on, you know, digital, virtual trade shows, but why do you think they don't work? What is it? I mean, why is it? Because we are, you know, why can't it be just as good when you sort of, when you do it virtually? Well, I think there's one big thing which is missing, which I try to put in the uh, questionnaires each time I'm asked uh, afterwards how the show was, is that it's the networking thing, you know. If if you would go to a physical trade fair and you were not allowed to talk to the people and only to look at the fabrics or only to look at what the exhibitors are showing, um, you will, would probably not attend the fair. You know that, and and we know that when, when, when working with Bruce, and we know that, 
it's not only about what you do and what you see, you know, it's, it's, it's also about the people you meet. It's, it's about the little lunch you have outside in the sun or on the shadow with a, a few friends from the business and where, where ideas grow, you know, and where, where connections are made. When, when you look at the computer, you're alone and you're staring at things. And we're not made for staring at things. Hmm. We're made to, you know, if, if someone would made a, a fair where I could on the screen see all the other, I don't know, 1,000, 2,000 attendees, you know, like the, the visitors, and I could click on people and say, oh, can I talk to you? Oh, ah, you're, you're also there. Why not? But, well, I don't know if, it's, if, it's, if you can manage that kind of thing on a software, on a small computer screen. But um, it's, it's just, you know... A fair today is a big party, and especially a denim fair. You know, it's a big party because we do not have like bread and butters anymore. So we, we, we meet each other, we connect to each other, we speak to each other. We need that. And, and, and buying fabric or looking at new innovation and hearing about trend and assisting to seminars where you can actually learn a lot, a lot. Um, because these, these shows, they want you to know, you know, they want you to know about how to become more sustainable, um, how to avoid greenwashing and become real. Uh, yes, all this is important, but the most important is maybe also the person who sits next to you in the room. Hmm, totally. So, so you're seeing this coming back and who will, you know, be the, I mean, uh, are the shows going to survive this? That's a good question. I think that's that's depend that depends on the on the amount of uh, money hmm. which allows the people to dive through this undersea period. You know, because yeah. I feel we we can as as a consultancy we can feel it right away you know we we work with manufacturers in asia who immediately from day 1 to day 2 were supposed to throw all their workers out in the streets because some buyer from some western uh, uh high street brand would just cancel millions of products which were already manufactured and 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 so Obviously, when the workers are thrown outside in the streets because the, the factories have no more money, but they have a lot of brown boxes with nicely manufactured products up to the ceiling in their warehouse, which no one wants to actually buy anymore and not respect their contracts, um, then the consultants um, are also on 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 the part where, well, maybe we have to renegotiate what, what you're doing right now. So yeah. we're, we're yeah. all touched by that thing where we understand that consumption goes on. I see it. I, I, have, a, I have small clients who are working through internet, through pre-order systems, who have absolutely no problem with the COVID and and, and they have a fantastic audience and, you know, the people almost decide on their own how the jeans should look like. Um, and as a designer, as a consultant, your work becomes totally different then. So that is the nice part. And, and the less nice part is that, well, since we have a lot of people who usually spend 
the the smallest amount of money possible for a value product, a gene which is made at the smallest amount of money possible, these people do not consume as they used to consume before. And that makes the big, big numbers of our world go crazy, you know, and and that is actually the problem. It's also a look in the mirror where we understand, well, okay, maybe that fantastic Japanese denim, which is sold 250 quid, 250 euro, um, is still selling. It still has its audience. It still has the people who will go and, and buy that stuff if it's in a, in a brick and mortar store, or if it's on internet. But they will still continue to consume. But, but the mass who buys sometimes textile, which they don't even wear and throw away, and which we all think is absolutely not possible to do anymore, it's no. still the foundation of our of our capitalism textile industry. So we have to rethink things, but we can't rethink them by just stopping to consume, to exist, to, to live and, and everything. So... Yeah, it's a, it's a good, I mean, so in that sense, you know, it might be a needed thing for the industry because we've talked about this a lot, you know, over the years that, okay, yeah, we need to change. We need to, we need to be more sustainable, produce less, mm. uh, less fast fashion and, and consumption mm. of, you know, things that are not really worn. Mm. Uh, and now this pandemic is sort of forcing it. For some I, I agree on that. It's forcing it. And I think... Yes, we have to go forward. But I'm also thinking about all the people who are pushed into misery because, you know, it's one thing mm. being in Europe or in America, maybe not even in America, but in Europe and saying, well, we have a good social system. I go home, uh, I work a little less, I, I watch a bit more Netflix and I, I have more time to take care of my kids, blah, blah, blah. And it's another thing to live in Asia and go outside mm. of the factory and have no more uh, medical assistance, Uh, no more electricity, no water to drink, and nothing to eat. Right. So, yes, we have to think about it. Yes, our society can't go on. Yes, denim has to be made differently, but not without thinking about these. I heard something like 20 million workers who are deep into, into misery. So, yes, I'd like to think about fantastic salvage denim, rope dyes, and, and, and how sturdy uh, 16 ounce or 20 ounce uh, denim is and uh, if it's washed or unwashed because that's my passion. But, but reality of the money side of the denim industry is still that there's a lot of people in the misery in Asia right now. And, 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 and that somehow breaks my heart. So what do you what is the solution then? I don't know this is a big question but how do we how do we deal with this the best way possible? Um well when asked about that I I I frequently say that we have to to create some uh structure you know like an international structure in the in the financial business we have the uh, uh international monetary fund Uh, when when they see oh there's one country which is not where it's not working out at all you know you, the country is under 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 the spotlight of the uh, FMI uh, uh, or no IMF uh, 
Fonds International yeah. Monétaire. And, yeah. and, and somehow we have to bring up, I mean, we even have it for tomatoes and bananas and, and butter in Europe. You know, we, we know exactly which country has the right to, to, be, to bring in, I don't know how many oranges and tomatoes. And we simply don't care about textile. And, and textile is a huge industry, a heavily polluting industry. And it's still totally abandoned. There's no legislation, no major legislation except maybe customs. Hmm. Right. And, and, and how would that look then? Just, you know, without, you know, this is getting into, you know, oh. speculation, of course. Yeah, but. yeah, yeah. No, no. That, they, <laughs> well, well, obviously, obviously you can have that either made by the industry or you can put in, bring in the politics, the governments, which will take another 50 years. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But I think there should be something like a united nation of uh, textile manufacturers. At least if all the big, big manufacturers from Asia would stand up and unite, hmm. maybe there would be a bit more weight against those brands who do not actually honor their, their contracts, you know? Because hmm. right now, no one is standing up, no one is saying anything because people are afraid about the fact that um, maybe they will not get any more contracts in the future from these brands. So exactly. it's, it's yeah. like who's kneeling the best, you know, and that's that's awful. But it is. to come yeah. back to the positive thing, I, I, I see a lot of made in Europe, made in France, made in Germany things, and I'm, I'm really trying to help my clients on that, on that sustainable made close to your place thing and and i think it has become feasible again you know because except italy there's many places in europe where you can't manufacture denim anymore but but it's changing you can mm -hmm. you can again and and so you can think about having garments made close to where you actually distribute them close to where your consumers are and maybe not put everything on those big big boats which pollute 200,000 million times more than your, your diesel car. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, you already sort of answered it, but my I think my last question really at this point would be also what the consumers can do because you know in the intro of this podcast they say that this is the podcast for for if you if your denim is your passion or your profession so we talked a bit of, mostly about profession now but if it's if it's your passion if you're not working and you're a consumer we all are but if you are into this as a consumer what can you do uh you know right now but also going forward with with, with everything we just talked about well, as a consumer, I think, and and that's un unfortunately not a very fair thing. You, I think you still the best thing is you you look at the pricing, you look at the, the made in of your garments, mm -hmm. and you try to to find out what's what's best. You know, I don't say that anything made in. Bangladesh or Pakistan is bad. Again, I think it's it's actually sometimes the opposite. But maybe if you if you get something, I don't pronto 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 moda from uh, Florence with a big made in Italy, and the pricing is not a lot more than a liter of milk. 
then you have to ask yourself a question. You have to ask yourself, if I, mm. if I have a garment with a certain made-in, which makes you think that you're buying into something premium made in Europe by, uh, with expensive uh, workmanship and, and, and uh, uh, a lot of cost, and the retail price is extremely low, then you have to ask yourself if you're not facing um, a product of modern slavery and, and, and maybe buy something a little bit more reasonable with uh, mm. a price which corresponds to the quality you have in your hands. So this has two, two unfair things, which means that if you do not have the budget – it's a problem. And if you do not have the know-how to understand if the fabric quality or if the made in on blah, 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 if all that works or not. So, but I think, yeah, the most important to me is to look if what you're buying is actually honest, if it corresponds, the price corresponds to a certain value, to a certain, to a certain degree of, of, of make. And if, if if this product, you, if that, if you buy a salvage denim and it costs thirty nine euros retail, then there's something wrong with it. Either yeah. it's not a real salvage denim, or it's made in slavery, or you know what I mean. Yeah, exactly. Right. So. Um well, I think that's a fitting place to end then uh, this conversation. So, so really, what what you Can we finish listeners something more positive because I see a lot of hope here. You know, I feel that yeah. you know, it's it's the moment to innovate. It's the moment to make R and D. It's the moment to change things. Yeah. Uh, in in a in a way that our our society our working craft society doesn't suffer from it nice well Tillman this was a pleasure and uh, uh, yeah a learning experience for me as well always to uh, to hear from someone who's this deep into the business uh, and has been for many years so uh, thank you for coming on thank you for taking the time and for sharing your uh, knowledge and experience here with us my pleasure You've made it to the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss a future episode. And if you want to get more content about denim, go to denimhunters.com. Okay.